would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. What are you willing to suffer and die for? That is the question of martyrdom that the book of Acts raises. Stephen, who was neither Christ nor an apostle, is remembered as the first martyr of the church. At this early point in the formation of the church, Luke is telling us that anyone who is faithful may suffer for the faith. Stephen's murder unleashed an intense persecution of Christians and resulted in their scattering throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. There is no doubt that with his murder, every Christian would have been asking, am I willing to die for my belief in Jesus? When is the last time you asked yourself this question? In our country where religious freedom is a constitutional right, our religious commitment is not supposed to be a life and death issue. Violence against persons on the basis of their religion is considered a hate crime. Furthermore, given the mainstream status of Christianity in this country, Americans who have died because of their Christian witness have usually, though not always, been missionaries on the soil of other countries. Upon entering the cafeteria at Princeton Theological Seminary, it is sobering to see three bronze plaques inscribed with the names of seminary graduates who paid with their lives for their Christian witness. Walter Macon Lowry, thrown overboard by pirates in the China Sea, 1847. John Rogers Peel, killed with his wife by a mob at Lin Chu, China, 1905. James Joseph Reed, fatally beaten at Selma, Alabama, March 11, 1965. Fortunately for us, to raise this question, am I willing to die for my belief in Jesus, is more of a hypothetical thought experiment. Stephen's story, however, may help us to consider the ways in which faithfulness to God may seriously clash with the common assumptions and practices of our culture and context. For the most part, we expect when we come to church to engage the word of God that we will be challenged by God's critique of how we live our lives, how we set up society, how we relate to the rest of humanity and creation. There are situations, however, when faithfulness to God brings our consciences into a crisis with our culture. In the story of Stephen, the situation has not been optimal for the Jewish people. Jews have been, as you know, under Roman rule. By now, the temple in Jerusalem has been ruined. Adding to this unrest in the first century was the fact that many Jewish sects 
were competing for the same for the name of the true Israel and the true interpreter of the Torah. The Talmud, which is an ancient commentary on the Torah, speaks of 24 such sects, including the form of Judaism that would eventually become the church. In this cultural context of great religious unrest, opponent Jews launched a smear campaign against Stephen and charged him with slandering Moses and destroying the laws and customs that Moses instituted. In the verses leading up to the passage we read today, Stephen refutes these charges with a long speech, the longest in the book of Acts, that selectively recounts Israel's history from Abraham through Jacob, Joseph, and Moses in telling this history, he intends to show how Israel has rejected its leaders time and time again. Just as the ancient Israelites rebelled against Moses, they have now rejected Jesus as Messiah, saying to them, you stiff-necked people, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Stephen then accuses them of murdering the Messiah. Stephen's speech seals his doom. They plug their ears, rage toward him, and stone him to death. The feud that led to Stephen's violent death was all in the family. Much like the prophets in Israel's history, through his speech, Stephen was courageously determined to tell the Jewish people's history honestly, even if it meant bringing judgment to his own house. Much like the fate of prophets, his truth-telling was not accepted and resulted in persecution. What courage it takes to tell a people's history honestly, especially when they are a people who are already suffering defeat. This was certainly the case for Germans in the decade that followed World War II. In his book, Aftermath, Life in the Fallout of the Third Reich, Harold Yehner devotes a chapter on how silent Germans were when it came to the Holocaust. It wasn't the case that they were overall quiet after their defeat in the war. But when it came to the murder of European Jews, they remained silent. Yener writes, we tend to imagine the repression as a silent process. And a lot has been said about silence after war. In retrospect, the post-war Germans saw themselves as the strong but silent types who had to deal with all that they had suffered without a word. But the opposite was the case. There may have been a withholding of speech here and there, but by and large, talking did not die out. On the contrary, particularly where their own affairs were concerned, many Germans were practically chatterboxes, superlatives that placed the suffering of the Germans high above the suffering of other nations sluiced through the German press, through brochures and tracts. The authors wallowed so expansively in their own suffering that there was no room and no thought left for other victims. 
It wasn't unusual to come across sentiments like this one, written in an article in 1947, quote, Perhaps we Germans recognize the seriousness of the hour more keenly than other people because we have stood closer to the void, and there is less in our way to distract us from our knowledge of the hard truth. While they were quite loquacious in speaking about their suffering from the war, their voices failed them in discussing the suffering of Jews. Even in a document called The Declaration of Guilt, issued by the Evangelical Church on October 19, 1945, the murder of European Jews was not explicitly mentioned, despite individual pastors insisting that it should be. The same was true of the Confession of Guilt by the Catholic Bishops' Conference in August of 1945 in Fulda, Germany. The Jews were not named, neither were the Roma or homosexuals. At most, they wrote, we regret it deeply. Many Germans, including some from our ranks, allowed themselves to be beguiled by the false doctrines of National Socialism and remained indifferent to crimes against human freedom and human dignity. Many were complicit in the crimes through their attitudes, and many became criminals themselves. Individual bishops had to fight hard just for the inclusion of the phrase, some from our ranks. In such contexts, when one's own people, nation, party, community, congregation, and family are suffering honest, are suffering, honest self-criticism buys with comfort and often loses. Loyalty to the truth and to God buys with other loyalties. And it is at those times that we feel an internal struggle within our consciences, and as Christians, we're forced to ask ourselves the question, which loyalties am I willing to sacrifice so that I can be loyal to Christ? What persecution am I willing to face so that I can be loyal to Jesus? I have just finished reading the novel Brotherhood, written by Anne Westrick, daughter of one of our saints, Jenny Bryan, who passed away just over two weeks ago. It is a fictional coming-of-age story that is great for youth in our congregation. It's about a 14-year-old boy, Shadrach Weaver, growing up in Richmond, Virginia in the post-Civil War era. His father worked a small farm before he got drafted by the Confederate Army and died in battle. From that time on, Shadrach and his older brother, Jeremiah, knew that their purpose in life was to take care of their widowed mother. Like most white Southerners, the Weavers were not landowners or slave owners. Like many, Shadrach was illiterate, never having gotten an education beyond Sunday school. Like many, Shadrach's parents opposed slavery, but refrained from speaking up against landowners. <laughs> Like most Southerners, Shadrach and his family supported the Confederacy for a host of different reasons, ranging from love of birthplace, loyalty to family, 
and honored to defend their property and way of life. Their anti-Yankee sentiment, which was shared by nearly all Confederates and still lingers to this day, arose when even after their defeat, Northerners continued to belittle Southerners. Even after their towns and cities were in complete ruin, Northern militias continued to rule Southern cities and patrol their streets. It was in this post-Civil War context that the novel was set, and against the backdrop of all these loyalties to family, community, and cause, that Shadrach wrestles with new-formed loyalties to the teachers and children of a colored school. The very day after he pledged allegiance to the Ku Klux Klan, of which he discovers his older brother Jeremiah, his granddaddy, and even the sheriff belong, he meets a black girl named Rachel who can read and who teaches beginner readers at a school for colored children. Shadrach has always wanted to learn how to read. And since he is an apprentice to his granddaddy's tailoring business, Shadrach makes a secret deal to get reading lessons from Rachel in exchange for sewing lessons that he gives to the children. Reading and brotherhood, was it too much to ask for both? Shad didn't want to give up either. The most important part of the Brotherhood of the Klan was its mission to protect Confederate widows, to his mind. His older brother expressed it well when he said at one of the Klan gatherings, it's been real hard for my family every, ever since my daddy died. And I know every one of you boys lost somebody too. And I just want to tell y'all how much you mean to me and my family. The brotherly and proud feelings of being in the clan warred with the peaceful and safe feelings he had when he was among the black children in the school. One time at school, Rachel was teaching the children a new song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. If the world had ended in that very moment, with Shad singing glory, hallelujah, in a school full of colored children, he would have gone to his maker with a smile on his face. He sensed that he belonged like he hadn't ever belonged anywhere before. With these secret loyalties at war within his conscience, Shad had to make a decision that no one else could make to warn Rachel that the Klan was planning to burn down the school, even with the children in it. It was a hard decision, and Shad did it in secret, not able to reveal to the Klan his other loyalties. The book ends with Shadrach seeing Rachel at a distance, far down the, the road, relieved that she was safe. Wanted to shout amen, that she and the children were still alive, but he didn't dare say anything. Our consciences are shaped by our contexts, especially the relationships and loyalties we have. It takes courage 
to tell the people we care about, especially if they are already suffering defeat, the honest, self-critical truth. While we are fortunate not to find ourselves in situations of martyrdom, there are critical moments in our lives that require us to tell the truth, even when it condemns us and the people to whom we are loyal, our family, our community, our church, our party, our nation. When we come to those junctures, in one form or another, the question arises, what am I willing to give everything up for, even die for? The willingness to die for God is at the heart of Christian martyrdom. Christian martyrdom is not, however, simply that. Christian martyrdom is not only an act of dying for God, but it is also how we speak about dying for God. According to Luke, when Stephen is being stoned to death and knows that he's going to die, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. Stephen's final words are like Jesus' final words on the cross. Imitating Jesus, Stephen prays that his persecutors will be forgiven. How we speak of dying for God makes all the difference to those who remain living. If even those who were put to death can forgive their persecutors, then surely those left living can too. Those left living are free from the desire for revenge. The final words of martyrs matter. They are what the living carry forward. Forgiveness is what distinguishes Christian martyrdom. Without forgiveness, we might be dying for something, but we can be certain that we're not dying for Jesus. Amen.